All right, welcome to another podcast edition of White Collar Crimes. The podcast where we show you the only color that truly matters in our criminal justice system is green. I'm Ryan Horn, the host. Great to have you aboard as always. I would say no matter what age you are or where you're listening from, you're probably familiar with the 1980s hit movie Wall Street starring Michael Douglas. But I would say just about all of you, the number one thing you remember from that movie is the character in it, the villain, Gordon Gecko, and of course the famous line, greed is good, greed is works. But did you know there was a man that was actually the inspiration for that character, a real life figure that said something quite similar that was, you know, the inspiration for that character? And that was a stock trader by the name of Ivan Bosky. Um, a lot of you may not be aware of him, uh, but... He is nonetheless the inspiration for a character that's, you know, certainly more well-known than he is. And he was a stock trader that was involved in insider trading scandals for the 1980s, during the 1980s. The insider trading is a tricky thing. We've talked about it a little bit on here before. You know, it's something that's brought some other famous people down, Martha Stewart being one, the television host, which there'll be a podcast coming up on her very soon, on her insider trading deals. And you know, it's basically when somebody has information that uh, they pass on to help somebody and other investors profit illegally. It's very hard to prove. It can be done, obviously, because as we'll talk about in the podcast about Martha Stewart, she ended up going to prison for it. You really have to prove illegal intent with that, and that's very hard to do. You know, in my opinion, Congress people and their families, you know, get away with this daily in this country. You know, they are able to know things and trends that are going to happen and they hurry up and invest in these things and they make fortunes off of it all while uh you know having a salary of you know 150 200,000 a year in a lot of cases um just saw something recently i believe it was california governor newsom even on his governor's salary somehow just bought like a seven million dollar winery or something you know and uh it's just amazing you know but they know a lot of what's going to happen and you know they do have some say in regulating and controlling the stock market and yet they're able to profit from it and you know it's not really legal in a sense but you know they get away with it although some sometimes do not now mr bosky was born in the 1930s in a jewish family in detroit his father was supposedly a big businessman around the area owned a lot of delis and taverns and things like that this is post uh prohibition so i'm sure in the 1930s owning Taverns was a good business, you know, because in 1933 it was, I believe, you know, Prohibition ended and the Volstead Act ended and people were able to drink again and have some good time, so probably a good business to cash in and profit on. Now, he grew up, nothing really much reported unusual about his childhood or upbringing. He attended a couple of different universities, but failed to get an undergraduate degree. Yet somehow he managed to get into the Detroit College of Law and obtain a law degree in 1965. And it's weird how some of them do it, but I think it shows that they are very good con artists, just in general. Um, Jeffrey Epstein, if you remember, when that came out a little bit about his background before his mysterious death a couple years ago, he uh, supposedly was able to get a job and get near teenage girls and high school girls and probably did God knows what with them. And even though it was found out later, he didn't have proper teaching or uh, certification or degree or credentials, but yet he was able to do that. Well, kind of the same thing here with Mr. Bolsky. He uh, did not have an undergraduate degree, which is required to get into law school, but uh, somehow he got in and 
was able to get a law school. Now, this is in the 1960s. It might have been a little different back then compared to state to state, um, you know, because, you know, each state is different on how they will allow somebody to be certified as a lawyer. There are still a handful of them where technically you don't have to go to law school. You can just, you know, kind of study under an attorney as an apprentice, which is known as reading the law. And when you're good and ready, take the bar exam. You know, actually a lot of famous attorneys have gone that route before. Not much so much anymore now that law schools dominate the legal profession. But I guess it's possible to do it that way. And however he did it, that's what he did. And he then later married the daughter of a wealthy Detroit real estate tycoon that owned a lot of properties, including the famous Beverly Hills Hotel. Now, Bolsky and his wife, they relocated to New York, and he began to work for some very large investment brokers at that time. One particular, like L.F. Rothschild, it's a firm that's no longer around now. Apparently, they uh, bit the dust in the 1987 big stock market crash that happened in October of that year. But, uh, you know, he got off to start with some pretty heavy hitters. And, like a lot of them, he later branched out on his own and started his own firm which was largely, largely financed by his wife's wealthy family. And with some savvy maneuvering and the sale of the hotel, he was able to build a reported fortune around the time of about $200 million. So you're talking in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, most likely when a lot of this is going on, you know, $200 million is a lot at any time. But you can imagine now this, you know, when you figure today's uh, dollars, it would be well over half a billion, maybe even approaching one billion, depending on exactly when he amassed this fortune. So it's a lot of money. He certainly did well for himself in the trading market and the real estate market, which, you know, kind of helped to start out when his wife's family was quite uh, proficient in this as well, as was his father. You know, his father owned several delis and taverns and things like that. So owning property and real estate was, you know, very good to him and his family. And he got so popular that he was actually featured on the cover of Time magazine in December of 1986. Which, you know, it's been controversial over the years. You know, they've pointed out a lot of people have. Adolf Hitler was like Time magazine's man of the year back in the 30s. Uh, the communist dictator Mikhail Gorbachev, he was, uh, I believe, their man of the year sometime and on the cover and things like that. So I'm not sure Time magazine is a, a great judger of carrot judge you know, of character in that sense, but, uh, you know, they, of course, at this time when they did this, maybe as much as not known about what he was doing and who he was, although it wasn't long after this, some things did begin to pop up and get on the radar of law enforcement and a lot of other authorities. Uh, again, it's illegal insider trading, as I explained, but it is very hard to prove for prosecutors because you have to prove intent, you know, the as it's known in the legal term in the legal profession, mens re, the mental state or intent. Now, as I teach the classes, you know, I work as an adjunct criminal justice professor at a few colleges in my area as well. And I often tell my classes, you can still have a crime without mental intent, but it's hard, and usually the punishment is not as uh, severe, you know. Uh, you know, you drive drunk and wreck and kill somebody, you may not have had first degree intent or malice in trying to kill that person, but nonetheless, you're negligent actions and in peril just got that person killed so you're still held criminally liable even though you didn't intend you know and uh it's hard but overwhelming majority of crimes you know to really be complete you have to prove a mental intent especially to you know get the most uh 
highest level of charge and the most high level of punishment possible. And it's really hard to do it, you know, because there's a fine line in having knowledge and, and foresight into what's coming and trying to cash in on it versus, you know, illegally doing that and manipulating, which is also similar to the pump and dump scheme that we talked about in the last week's episode involving the uh, current Bed, Bath & Beyond uh, controversy, which I did find out recently, uh, just a couple days ago, actually, in my area here, the one in Carbondale, Illinois, is actually going to be shutting down as well. So. A lot of them are going out of business, and that's sad. A lot of people going to be out of work, and, uh, you know, I know some people, even a co-worker, that shops there and buys soap there and things like that, and now that's going to be gone. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, intent is hard to improve or hard to, imp to prove in situations like this. And he was suspected of providing this insider info to some other investors so they could make, make it big and cash in as well, and a lot of them apparently did. But around this time in 1986, he was charged with conspiracy to commit violations of the federal securities laws. Feds have some of the longest crimes now charged. You know, I do my work primarily overwhelmingly this deal with state crimes and statutes, but I've always noticed that the feds have really long written out statutes and crimes the way they're described and defined. So that's what he was charged with. Now. Once he was charged, he began to snitch and squeal and sing like a canary, like a lot of them do, on uh, you know some pretty high rollers. One of them, a financier by the name of Michael Milken, which we will have something on him coming up in a couple of weeks as well. Big, uh, famous white-collar criminal from the 80s and around this time. But as a result, he ends up taking a plea, and because of his cooperation and you know willingness to roll on some other people and that kind of thing. He was able to get a reduced sentence of three and a half years and a $100 million fine, you know, which that's a pretty hefty fine, even if he had it, you know, like I said a little bit ago, it was reported he had amassed a fortune up to around 17, or I'm sorry, $200 million. So, you know, that's, that's half his fortune there. Now, again, whether or not he paid it or how much he paid, not a lot's been said about that, but as I say over and over again on this podcast, if you really look, the overwhelming majority of the time, very few of these white-collar criminals pay their full restitution, or even much of them at all. They might pay a little bit, but I've seen very, very few cases where these uh, white-collar criminals actually pay the full restitution to the victims they victimize. You know, and a lot of reason, you know, greed, arrogance. Uh, some of it, I think, too, you know, they could have squandered a lot of what they've taken in, and that money is just simply not there to pay back the people. Uh, a lot of times, you know, these class actions things happen, and people get back a small amount. But uh, the victims of white-collar crimes very rarely fully recover their financial losses, and, of course, the psychological and other damages that are done as a result of that are even worse over time and cause much more hardship to uh, the victims. But you know, who knows if he paid it back. In three and a half years, you know, that's, you know, not really that uncommon for a white-collar criminal. They usually don't get really extensive sentences. And, you know, it's not really un uncommon to see someone that does what they call proffering and squealing and telling on other people involved for them to get a little lower uh, of a sentence, you know, through a plea bargain. It's not uncommon. I mean, I don't know that there's any proof he got any type of... Uh, special or preferential treatment in this case, but uh, that's what he pled down to and that's what he got. Because, you know, I can know from my days working at the sheriff's office, transporting a lot of uh, suspects to federal court near 
where I work that, uh, you know, working with the feds, one of the almost only ways they say to get a reduced sentence a lot of times is the proper and squeal on other people, especially in drug cases. Now, his obviously wasn't a drug case, but he certainly knew about the criminal activities of a lot of people and his willingness to tell and squeal on them bought him a little bit less time, which speaking of time, he apparently served this sentence at the Lompoc Federal Correctional Facility out in California. That's a pretty federal, uh, famous federal prison out that way. Uh, when I did work at the sheriff's office, there was an older gentleman that was retired and worked a little bit there at the jail when I did, and I believe he said that was one of the places he had worked at at one time. There's a lot of famous prisons out in California, state and federal. You know, you got San Quentin, Alcatraz, uh, Pelican Bay, you know, I can remember uh, Denzel Washington referencing that prison in the movie Training Day. Prisons out in California, and uh, that's where he did his time. And like a lot of these white-collar criminals, post-conviction, he was banned from working again in the securities industry. Now, that is, you know, in the formal, out in the open, you know, types of jobs that require licensing. What he could do, and I'm sure he has done, most of these do, they can still work behind the scenes as a quote-unquote consultant, or, you know, they can still finance somebody and some operations for people that are allowed to still legally work and trade in the industry. So, you know, it doesn't stop anybody from still being involved in the securities business. It just takes them from doing it out in the open and legally and, you know, for the operations and procedures that require licensing, that's all. You know, he lost the ability to do that, which, you know, again, that's pretty much standard uh, protocol when somebody gets a conviction for a securities violation like what he did. Now, when he got out, he did uh, supposedly want to reshape his image and uh, began practicing Judaism faithfully, and he started attending courses at the Jewish Theological Seminary in America. And apparently he had been a big donor of this institution in the past, but at his request, he had it removed. Uh, he had his name removed from their library. Almost kind of remind me. I had to laugh a little. Remind me a little bit of the movie Back to School in the 1980s with Rodney Dangerfield, where uh, Dean Martin, as he was known in the movie, then it was Ned Beatty uh, mentioned that uh, you know Thornton Mellon, Rodney Dangerfield's character, wasn't doing very well in school, but he was a famous rich businessman, and you know he did quote make a pretty sizable donation uh, to the university. That's you know paraphrase there. I can't remember exactly what he said, but that's what. That scene kind of reminds me of, and you know, it, a little money in this country, you know, can certainly buy you a lot of influence, but I'm sure his name on that wall, uh, donators, was very harmful to the, uh, the institution, the, uh, you know, seminary, their, their reputation, so, you know, he asked for their own sake that they have it removed, which they did. And following his release in 1991, his wife did divorce him, the wife of the uh, wealthy real estate family, but uh, supposedly left him very well financially off as part of the divorce settlement, you know, and you don't always see that, but uh, I guess he landed on his feet even there too, so he certainly wasn't hurting even though, you know, he was no allowed longer to legally participate in the securities trading industry. He was able to, uh, you know, as I said, land on his feet and keep going and uh, was supposedly left very well financially off. In the last report, he did remarry and uh, I think had another child and was reported to still be living in California, where he also served his uh, federal time at. And you know, as I said earlier, he's mainly known as the inspiration for Gordon Gecko of the 
character again with the famous line, greed is good, greed is work. Well, how did he get that reference? How did he get compared to that? Or how did he inspire that character? Well, he supposedly made a very similar statement once, similar to one that Gecko made, in a speech to the business school at the University of California in Berkeley. And his fa- actual statement, which is you know very close to what they've used and inspired for Gecko, he said, I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself. Thought, no, Mr. Bolsky, maybe you can, you know, because you don't have a conscience, but uh, most of us listening to this podcast would say greed is not good, and if you are, you know, heavily involved in it, you shouldn't feel good. Certainly brings down plenty of people. We know it's listed as one of the seven deadly sins. Certainly brought down him. You know, destroyed most likely a family life, cost him a marriage, uh, cost him his freedom for a few years, and his reputation, but if all you care about is money, and most likely from what I can tell about him, that is all he cared about, uh, I guess you are able to go on, and uh, greed is not able to bother you, because as I've also pointed out on this podcast many times, you know, from my uh, research studies when I was at the university, uh, getting my graduate degree at the University of Cincinnati, uh, white-collar criminals you know, deny responsibility and involvement, and they very rarely ever accept full responsibility. They usually just as well uh, as street criminals. It's not uncommon. Street criminals usually deny any wrongdoing or guilt, and it's no different from white-collar criminals either. They totally deny any type of guilt or responsibility, or they totally justified it there that uh, you can be greed, and it can be good, and uh, it's okay to be greedy because you can feel good about yourself and still be greedy. I happen to disagree, and I think probably most of you listening to this podcast would uh, disagree as well. But if you haven't checked that movie, you want to see the inspiration from him. It's a movie made in about, I think, 1987, 88, somewhere in there. It's uh, called Wall Street, and it features, uh, stars Michael Douglas as uh, Gordon Gecko. And there was actually a sequel to it years later, around the time my wife and I first got married. I remember uh, we went to see it. And uh, Michael Douglas is in it again. He plays Gordon Gecko after he's gotten out of prison and, you know, his life and everything else. But the main focus in it, I think, is the young uh, person who's inspired by him. I think it's played by Shia, if I remember right, in the sequel. But, uh, you know, check those out as well. It gives you a little more inspiration, or you can see the inspiration behind the character. Uh, you know, now you know when you see that who actually inspired this character. And he's also featured on a documentary, I believe it's on CNBC, called Empires of New York. Uh, more about him and where he's at and what he's doing. Which, uh, speaking of that, at this time, it's not sure, you know, where he's at or what he's doing. You know, as I said a little bit ago, he meant to reshape his reputation. But as far as his business activities, who knows? You know, as I said, he can't legally trade in the securities industry. So what he's doing most likely is going to have to be behind the scenes. And... Even at his advanced age now, he's got to be well into his 80s now. Who knows? Uh, a lot of times they still don't stop offending. You know, white-collar criminals, again, are not any different than common street criminals. They continue to offend and break the law, you know, even after release from prison. So, who knows? Maybe we haven't heard the uh, last from Mr. Bolsky, the inspiration for Gordon Gecko. So, yeah, and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh Next week, we're going to try to get you one about Martha Stewart, a little more on some insider trading, a famous insider trading case. And then, like I said, we got one coming up on one of uh, the ones that Bosky squealed on, a Mr. Michael Milken. We're going to cover his case as well. 
And we do thank you for tuning into this. And if you have an idea for a show, you can contact us on our Anchor FM page. Or you can email me at uh, ryanhornbt at gmail.com. Uh, you'll be glad to even have you on as a guest. We've had some of you listeners on here as a guest, and we're glad to do that as well. Um, you know, so get a hold of us. You can donate to us as well. There's a link on the, our Anchor FM page if you want to send us even as little as a dollar. You know, every little bit helps to keep this going. And if you're in need of voiceover service, voiceover work, please feel free to get a hold of me on that. You can also check out my website at ryan-horn.com. And you can email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com with any requests of service you need. Uh, just finished an audio book, started another one, and might have two more coming up very soon in some projects. More on that any time now. And as always, can't say it enough, you know, support your local pet shelter, adopt your next best friend there, you know. Our three dogs and two cats that my wife and I have have all come by this route, and uh, it's very rewarding, and I certainly recommend it to anybody. So keep an eye out for each other. You know, again, watch out for your friends and family, especially the elderly, as they are getting victimized by these more than anyone. Uh, Keep an eye out if you have student loans. There's a lot of student loan scammers with what's going on in that subject right now in our country. So uh, keep watch for each other. Thank you for tuning in. God bless. We will talk to you next week.